HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Misenbox, bringing restaurant-prepared meal kits to your door. Learn more at misenbox.co. That's M-I-S-E-N box dot co. Hello, hello, Heritage Radio Network listeners tuning in from 165 countries around the world, about a million listens a month. And this is the beginning of our fall season 2021, and we are kicking it off with a brand new project that launched in 2021. It's called The Forge Project, and it's a really beautiful property in upstate New York. It is an initiative to support leaders in culture, education, food security, and land justice. They have also simultaneously launched their first fellowship program. And amidst the first cohort of four people, we have Jasmine Neosh, who is doing some very interesting things around climate sustainability and transferring knowledge to digital formats for posterity, which kind of sounds a little bit like what we do here at TechBytes. So to talk today about the FORGE project, we have Heather Briegel, who is the Director of Education. Um, Heather, thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you so much for having me. So tell us a little bit about the FORGE project. Uh, yeah, so uh, my name is Heather. I'm a citizen of the Oneida Nation of Wisconsin, first-line descendant Stockbridge-Munsee, and Forge Project is a project that um, was developed um, earlier this year, kind of, you know, in a think tank of how we can help raise Indigenous voices and um, all the awesome work that's happening um, in Indian country that revolves around climate justice, social justice, cultural awareness. And all of this um, for me is really awesome because Forge Project takes place on the ancestral homelands of of the Stockbridge-Munsee community, also known as Mohican Nation. Um, It takes place in their homelands. And so I'm very excited to be able to help bring awareness to things that are happening in Indian country, but also uh, be able to come home in a sense uh, to the ancestral homelands of my ancestors. So before we move forward, you, you and I had a very interesting conversation around the, the nomenclature of indigenous and Indian nation. So when you talk about indigenous people, I'm originally born and raised in Hawaii. So when I hear indigenous, I also think about island people, which is far away, but perhaps the same idea. Which indigenous people are we talking about? 
We are talking about the first peoples of Turtle Island, the the um, native groups that um, are home to what we now call the United States. Um, those are the indigenous peoples, the ones that you know colonists first encountered, that Columbus uh, first saw. Those are the indigenous peoples of of this land, and in particular, you know, in New York, you've got the Oneida Nation, which I am part of, Mohegan Nation, which I am part of, Seneca, and all these other great nations um, there. And so that's who we're talking about when we talk about Indigenous peoples. Okay, that's good to know. There's so many um, different types of definitions and interpretations of, you know, language that because this is so specific to a group of people, I think it's great to have a clear understanding of we're talking about. So the project started this year. Tell us where it is and and about the structures themselves, because it's really breathtaking. And if people are listening and wanting to follow along and look at things and explore a little bit more while they're listening to the podcast, I would encourage you to go to forgeproject.com and look at some of the beautiful photography of the space. Yeah, yeah, it's gorgeous. I had the honor of being able to stay uh, in the space earlier this summer, um, and it was it was unreal. Number one, first time being back in the homelands of of my ancestors, so that was uh, thrilling all in itself. But being able to stay in this beautiful location, um, Forge is located on the unceded ancestral lands of the Mahikaniuk people, people of the waters that are never still um, in upstate New York, just outside of Hudson, um, which is near the Mahikanatuck River, which is the river that flows both ways. Um, You know it as the Hudson River today. And um, uh, there's two structures that were developed by artist and activist Ai Weiwei. Um, One is uh, more of a rectangular building. Um, Inside, it's, it's very open. The concept of open space and um, light is is very prevalent in this house. And then there's a second building, and it's a Y-shaped building, literally like the letter Y, and where upstairs is studio and gallery space, and downstairs is a residence where our fellows actually will be living um, for however long that they are staying with us. And it's located... Um, you know, you can see the beautiful sunset across the mountains, and it's just, it's absolutely gorgeous. It's a very serene, very untouched area other than the buildings with lots of um, vegetation and growth, and there's a stream that goes through the property. And so it's a very beautiful space to be able to uh, stay in and that we hope helps foster some really great creative work. It, it really is beautiful. And, um, you know, it almost makes you want to apply for a fellowship just so that you could go and stay there. <laughs> it's awesome to stay there. It's so wonderful. Um, I, like, didn't want to leave when my time there was done. <laughs> <laughs> so Forge Project officially launched this year. And simultaneously, almost, you launched the fellowship program, which is ambitious to do two things at once. Tell us about what the what the overall goal is for the fellowship program and how you went about selecting the first cohort of four. Yeah, the fellowship program was really designed to um, to help lift up voices and those really awesome people who are working in Indian country right now um, who uh, we want to help showcase. And so the idea behind it is there's a lot of people in the world, a lot of great water protectors, activists, and others who are out there doing this work. But we understand that this work 
costs. It costs in time with your family. It might cost you time away from a job that if you have a job that is you know, a nine to five that you have to go to and, you know, and, and things um, can kind of not fall by the wayside, but get forgotten about. And so sometimes you have to choose between doing this great work and then, you know, putting food on the table. And so the fellowship was designed in order with uh, a monetary amount that would allow these great people who are working in cultural awareness, whether that's language revitalization or bringing back traditions, ceremony, what have you. Those who are working in climate justice, um, who understand that, you know, global warming is a real thing. And, you know, indigenous people have been at the forefront of that. And also social justice, you know, in inserting indigenous rights, treaty rights, sovereignty, food sovereignty, we understand that in order to do this work, sacrifices have to be made. And so we designed this fellowship in mind with a monetary amount that would allow people to continue to do this really great and important work in Indian country, but not worry about our bills getting paid, is, you know, rent being taken care of, or things like that. So it, the, the fellowship was designed to allow you to do this great work and not have to worry about the everyday tasks of being able to live. And that was the, um, that was the mindset behind it. And picking, you know, the four fellows this year, um, was, uh, quite the task because we were looking for people who were doing this work that aligned with our mission of social justice, climate justice, and cultural awareness, but really focusing in on indigenous people and the work that we're doing because, one of Forge's missions is to um, bring awareness to those who've been displaced by settler colonialism. And, um, you know, those we have an architect, uh, an, a visual artist, a climate justice activist, and somebody who's working in language revitalization. So these are very, very important things that we want to continue to bring awareness to. And so that's kind of how the fellows this year were picked. Um, we are working on fellows for next year already. And we'll be putting a out a call for those shortly. That's very exciting. Um, and it's interesting that so much of the work has to do with the environment and the land, because yes. so much of the, the story of Indian country is a story of land in, in many ways. Um, how was it launching this in 2021 coming at this point in the world where we are with the coronavirus pandemic, things were primarily, you know, shut down in 2020. Was this the original game plan to launch both the project and the fellowships in 2021? Were you launching last year? Did any of that change your game plan to how you were going to start? Really, no. The The idea was to launch in 2021 to begin with. The idea was really conceived at the beginning of this year. And so we knew 2021 was going to be our year. Have we made adjustments due to the COVID-19 pandemic? Absolutely. Um, you know, we still hold events, but there are COVID protocols that we put in place. But we're also being mindful, too, that, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic has hit communities of color disproportionately than other communities, including um, 
Indigenous nations. And so we have been very mindful in in making sure that everything that we do revolves around the health, safety, and protection of our Indigenous fellows who we know go back to Indigenous communities. And so we're making sure that, you know, we're taking every, um, every steps that we possibly can. But no, the goal was always to launch this year. Is there an enhanced sense of urgency right now or sense of... Um importance, not that this work or the idea or the community are not important always, but do, do you feel a sense of, of perhaps increased gravitas that now is the time to really start to, um, you know, put something together and, you know, sort of put a stake in the ground, as it were? Well, there's a lot of things happening, you know, right now in Indian country. You've got the concept of of land back. And so that's something that Forge is also being really mindful of, understanding that Forge's location is on the unceded homelands of my ancestors. You know, that that's something that we take very uh, seriously and actually are working on, you know, bringing together a think tank that talks more about what land back is and and that and the reasons behind it but also understanding you know they just said earlier this year um not this year but a couple weeks ago uh 2021 was the hottest summer on record since the dust bowl like we hit record numbers but if you stop and think about it every summer since the last summer before has been the hottest summer on record and so understanding that we're running out of time to bring awareness of, you know, the climate and and how things are changing and global warming. And that's important. You know, we've got it. We've got to make sure we're making a mark on that. And then, of course, with the events of this summer, with things that are happening, you know, with pipelines and line three, it's very important to bring awareness to that. And then in terms of cultural awareness and bringing back traditions and and language, you know, Indigenous nations have been working on these for years. And in terms of uh, by ancestors, you know, we are working on language revitalization for the Mohican language, a language that was all but dead. And it's now being brought back to life by really dedicated community members. It's important that we bring this, um, we bring these issues to the forefront, not just in terms of culture, because we've learned that through this pandemic, we are losing culture bearers. You know, people are dying because of COVID-19. And it's important for us to capture every bit of information that we can to pass on to the next generations. But it's also important to protect the earth that we live on because there's no point in capturing all of this information and passing on on if there's no planet to live on. So it's important to bring awareness to that, but then understanding that the land that we all live on is stolen land. And so making sure that that's all at the forefront. So it, I, it kind of all combines together uh, when you really think about it. And so, yes, there is, you know, urgency to get all of these things done now because the time, you know, a lot of people are paying attention. And so we want to make sure people continue to pay attention. That is uh, a very, very complex, sort of complex ecosystem of ideas and necessities and things that you want to both um, build and create and then take forward with you, which is the perfect segue into Jasmine Neosh, who is 
one of the first fellows. She is the climate change activist now, I think, is a good title. Climate change crusader, researcher, writer. Jasmine, thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you so much for having me. When you and I spoke last week, you you said you were almost surprised to find yourself in the seat of climate activist and environmentalist. Yeah, um, it's definitely not something that I think I had always envisioned my my path working out this way. Um, you know, for a really long time, I you know I worked as a as a fiction writer. I worked as a um, gallery curator. I worked at, you know, in the restaurant world, I, I did all of these, um, you know, really disparate things that all kind of revolve around people and community building. Um, even though environmentalism has always been in the, in the back of my mind and in the back of my life and like built directly into the, the structure of my culture. Um, but it wasn't until, um, you know, a couple of years ago when I realized that the entire reason that I was doing all those things that didn't quite seem to line up and constantly jumping from job to job is because I hadn't found my purpose or the thing that I was supposed to be doing. Um, but luckily a few years ago, I, you know, I realized what was missing and now this is what I do. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you describe what you do? Um, I've kind of been working in the title of like, for a long time, it was climate change generalist um, in the sense that, you know, traditionally in academia, what you would do is, you know, you would have a, a thing that interested you, like a, a specific topic, and you would just kind of drill down into that as far as you could possibly go, right? Like that's how it starts off in undergrad, where you kind of like figure out broad field, you get to your master's degree and you narrow it down and then you get to your PhD where you're like the world renowned expert in like, you know, one or two things. Um, instead, what I do is I wanted to understand these problems um, from a very wide scope. I wanted to understand them as thoroughly as I can. And for me, that meant kind of going at it horizontally rather than rather than vertically. Um, so I do a lot of work around um, climate communications is a big part of what I do. I've done some some podcasting and some video work, um, but then also research um, into things like the wild edible plants um, of my own ancestral homeland. Um, as well as, you know, some activism stuff like going out there and yelling at bad guys. <laughs> <laughs> yelling at bad guys. We need more of that perhaps in the world. Um, fewer bad guys, more people yelling. So you also worked on something which is really interesting, the Tribal Climate Change Database. And I think one of the interesting things about that and also about some of the work that you're doing is taking information and putting it into a digital format or an online format so that it can be, you know, shared more broadly, recorded, analyzed, and also saved for the future, finally, someplace. Um, so much of the information that we have about these, you know, about things are from different sources and different people and, you know, organizing them in, in a way that, you know, we can look at them holistically, but then also have them going forward is, is sounds like it's something important right now, especially going back to what Heather said about losing people and losing the information that they have with them. Um, tell us about the climate change database and then talk to us a little bit about recording things in that way online and digitally. 
Sure. Um, so the Tribal Climate Change Database, um, which is at tribalclimatechangedatabase.com, it's still uh, active, all one word, um, was a project that came out of a collaboration between um, the institute that I work for and collaborate with a lot, which is um, the College of Menominee Nation Sustainable Development Institute, um, who are doing just fantastic work around like so many different things. If you like um, traditional agriculture and like really cool food stuff, like definitely check them out at some point. But so that collaboration um, was between them and uh, one of the, I would say, like one of the greatest living indigenous scholars today is a man named Kyle White, um, who at the time was working for Michigan State University. And so the way that this came about was we were kind of looking at ways to um, improve the ethical relationships between tribes and scientific organizations. Um, And through this process, I had to read, you know, like, a couple hundred different like federal reports about tribes and climate change, which, you know, sounds um, arduous, <laughs> but was actually like really fantastic for me because that showed me a lot of things that I probably would never have thought of, which is, you know, indigenizing this really um, kind of thought of as a, as a primarily white field, which is, you know, scientific research, um, especially around, um, you know, climatology, basically. And they would bring culture into it in these really beautiful ways. Like they would, instead of just going through the scientific data um, that was available to them, they would interview elders. Um, And of course, like what better way to actually understand like how the planet has changed over time than to talk to these people who've been there for the longest, who are actually living with the land and like know something about it. And as I was reading it, I was like seeing all these things that were popping up that were just very scientifically salient but then also um, just so beautifully and unabashedly cultural, like so indigenous in like the way that they were doing things that I just, I wanted people to see it and I wanted people to see it the way that I saw it. Um, So I was lucky that, um, you know, the person I was working for had the understanding to like see what it is we were doing and why that might be important. and who trusted me enough to do this thing. Like I'm not a, I don't build databases. (laughs) Like I'm not going to school for information technology or anything like that. So I had to learn how to build a database and learn how to build a website to host that database so that I could do this um, insanely complicated thing. And, you know, Kyle was insanely supportive throughout it. But so the idea here is that you can then go and look through all these hundreds of uh, tribal climate change documents and look for them, not just by, you know, um, sea level rise or ocean acidification or any of this, but also through cultural revitalization programs, um, intergenerational knowledge sharing, um, obviously like renewable energy projects, um, and really see and get a full image of like the way that indigenous people are responding to this global crisis and doing so in ways that not only address this crisis and, you know, find ways to live and cope with this horrifying new reality that we're all in, but also strengthen um, and improve upon the resilience that's been there for, for thousands of years. Um, and I think as I started doing that sort of work, it really struck me that this is, as even though the technology itself is novel, um, the impulse is not, right? Our ancestors have been recording things for us forever. Everything that's done as an indigenous person is not just done with the present in mind. You're doing, everything you do is intergenerational. Um, one of my mentors likes to say that our place in all of this, like the thing that we're doing is we're the link 
um, between all of that tremendous history and the next seven generations that are to come. And so I think recording those things, um, even if they're in this kind of like new format in a way is also um, very, very traditional, the more that you think about it. Heather, how much of this transference of intergenerational knowledge for the future, how much does that influence the FORGE project and the fellowships and, and the work that you are doing collectively? Is, is, it a, is it a precipice moment right now in time to make sure that all the knowledge that we have does get retained for the next generations? I would say, yeah, very much so. And and because it influences me, um, it then directly or indirectly influences Forge. I think, you know, I'm a historian um, by training. It's what I went to school for. And it's what I've done a lot in my career, you know, um, besides working, you know, in, in retail jobs to get through college. But um, a lot of the things that I do revolve around around history, around the past, around those oral stories that we've been told and passing that information on. And even the work that I do now, um, you know, is, is part of that. And, you know, I just finished working for um, the Stockbridge Wednesday community, my one of my home tribes. And, you know, we finished up a number of digitizing projects that where, you know, we captured stories, captured photographs, histories, um, and digitized them so that they're available for people to come in, um, whether they're doing research, whether they're just community members who want to learn more, um, to help capture that information. There's a spot for them to go now where they have that. And I think, you know, with Forge, one of our goals is, is to aid in that. And I'm a firm believer in capturing those histories and understanding that because, as Jasmine did point out and was said earlier, it does affect what's going to happen within the next seven generations. And, you know, as a historian, I'm a firm believer that if you you can't learn and understand your present or your future if you don't understand that past. So having those um, archives and access to those so people can be able to go back and learn is super important. And I think now more than ever, and, and it's so sad that it took a pandemic for a majority of people to figure this out, capturing these things is more important than ever, in my opinion. It's that recipe from your you know, beloved aunt or your grandma or someone in your family who, who made that great thing every year at the holiday yeah. when the family got together and you thought that you would have all the time in the world to learn how to make it. And then one day the recipe is gone. It's gone. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Things, I, I think, you know, that sort of the home cooking is one of the simplest and easiest ways to sort of communicate what you have and you think you have so much time for it. And then ultimately, oh no, <laughs> we, 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 we ran out of time. Right. Absolutely. So important to capture that information. We are going to take a quick break and find out who is sponsoring this episode. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. We keep the lights on and the mics hot out of the generosity of our members, who are mostly listeners like you, underwriters, and sponsors like this one. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Misenbox, bringing restaurant-prepared meal kits to your door and enabling anyone to be the hero of their kitchen. 
You can book fun and lively virtual cooking sessions featuring restaurant chefs who guide the group through the preparation of their home-delivered meal kit. They're always looking for new restaurant partners. If you're a restaurant, a food truck operator, or a catering food brand looking for an additional line of revenue, Miesenbox can help get you into the meal kit space in a matter of days. If you're an eater, recommend your favorite restaurant and Miesenbox will take care of the rest. Learn more at Miesenbox.co. That's M-I-S-E-N box.co. You are listening to Tech Bytes on the Heritage Radio Network. This is a show where we look at the intersection of food and technology, and we talk to influencers and innovators and people working on projects to help us all move forward. Today, we are talking about the Forge Project, which was launched this year in 2021. If you want to check it out and take a look at it online, go to forgeproject.com. You can find them on social media at Forge Project NY. If you want to have a live and in-person experience and maybe go up to the Hudson Valley and see the beautiful Forge Project space, On September 30th, 2021, they will be doing an event live from Forge Project, The Land and You. It's a public discussion about land and some of the issues we've been talking about today. Um, There is an Eventbrite invitation to sign up. I believe it will be recorded and be available to people to see after. Um, But Heather, tell us about some of the other events that Forge Project has coming up in the first year of business and um, things that maybe people who are interested in following or participating in, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, absolutely. So follow us on Instagram, uh, Forge Project uh, NY is our Instagram handle. Um, We post a lot of things up there um, in regards to that, but also following us at uh, forageproject.com as well. Um, so as you mentioned, we do have our event September 30th, which will be um, a moderated discussion between myself and Jasmine. So I'm super stoked about that. Um, in addition to that, we have at the beginning of October, um, we have a virtual event that is happening and that will be happening October 8th um, with a uh, indigenous uh, language linguist um, where we will be talking about the importance of indigenous languages. Um, that pers- that event will be on completely virtual because the linguist is in Canada. So we will be doing that via Zoom. There'll be an invitation and a Zoom registration that you can get to. Then on October 16th, we will be doing another in-person event where um, we will do the Eventbrite registration and links and stuff with another fellow, Brock Schreiber, a citizen of the Stockbridge Muncie community, who will be talking about the uh, Mohican language revitalization programs um, that's going on, which is really exciting. Um, I was able to be part of that for a few years, so I'm really stoked about that. And then um, the other event that we have this year so far is... uh, Veterans Day event on November 11th, which will also be in person. And there will be a place where you can register for that event as well. And um, I will actually be doing that event. I will be doing a lecture on um, Indigenous people and military service. Uh, Indigenous Native nations uh, serve at a higher rate per capita in the U.S. military than any other group in the United States. So um, what better way to honor them than to talk about all the service um, that they have done for the United States. So that's what we've got so far. um, And we're already working on programming for next year. 
That's exciting. So lots, lots to do, lots to follow. And if you're ever up in that neck of the woods, definitely um, maybe drive by and see it because it's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful space. Jasmine, tell us what you will be working on as a fellow, and you're going to be going up there soon and, and staying at Forge for a little bit for your residency. What, what do you plan on, on working on while you're up in that beautiful space? So I've got a couple of um, projects going on, but I think the main one that I'll be focusing is uh, focusing on is actually building a podcast of my own. Um, so as things have kind of transitioned over the last, I would say, um, year or two, um, I've started shifting my focus a little bit from uh, climate change, like specifically to the broader concept of land, land justice, um, land ethic, land relationships, things like that. Um, so the project that I'm going to be working on is um, a project project that I'm going to be calling um, Of the Land, um, which will be uh, something that explores all of these different concepts, especially like, you know, concepts around language, around mapping, um, you know, jurisdiction, redlining, um, you know, trespassing laws, all of these really deep concepts that shape so much of um, of the life here in on, you know, what is on Turtle Island, what is now the United States. Um, and I'm looking forward to doing a lot of interviews uh, with folks. I've got some really great people that are lined up. Um, and that'll basically be what I do instead of, you know, writing research papers and things like that, ways to kind of engage in these really, really important discussions with people in a way that I think will hopefully meet them where they're at, um, rather than trying to invite them into a, a very stuffy sort of academic space. Um, I want this to be engaging and focus a lot on the story. Um, so there will be a lot of that. Podcasts are great. <laughs> they are one of the um, best ways to communicate information. I think that one of the things that I always appreciate about podcasts is that they are um, very intimate and conversation and you get to hear a person's voice. And in this digital age, so much of our communication is visual, you know, Instagram is text messaging, is written words and things like that. And we often don't get to hear people's voices anymore. And the tone of someone's voice, you know, laughter, breathing, um, all those types of things really contribute to, um, you know, communicating the, the impetus and the thrust of what someone's saying and also how you experience it. I also think that many people listen to podcasts on a headset or headphones or something like that. And so it really becomes a very close one-on-one -on -one conversation where you're really speaking directly to somebody, which is um, rarer and rarer, I think, generally in, you know, modern, modern days with all the technology that we have. Even Zoom with video phone calls or FaceTime and things like that, they, um, it's a little bit strange sometimes to see someone, you know, flattened out into 2D. Um, but the voice, I think, is, is very close to, to being very realistic. Um, and that aspect, that very analog aspect of podcasting is certainly what drew me to putting together Tech Bytes and going on to the Heritage Radio Network platform. Um, yeah, so we can, we can help you with that if you need some um, advice or help or guests. We are very interactive and we love new projects. One thing that you and I discussed when we spoke last week, which was really interesting about um, studying the land, and it sort of fits into 
loosely what I would call um, some of the regenerative farming ideas about a um, sort of like multi, multi-layered environment that naturally happens, you know, in forests and fields and things like that with all different types of life forms and plant forms that are working together in a cyclical nature. Talk to us a little bit about that, you know, the stewardship of the land and then studying and, and that really tightly wound interactive ecosystem between what's actually happening on the land and then the stewardship of that land. Sure. Um, so one of the best ways that you can uh, get an indigenous academic, especially somebody who, you know, works um, in the environmental field to get angry at you and possibly throw a chair at you is to uh, <laughs> invoke the what's called the pristine wilderness idea, uh, pristine wilderness myth. It's the idea that when, um, you know, settlers first came here, you know, they stumbled upon what they thought was basically a Garden of Eden, right? It seemed magical and perfect. And you walk, you know, down these incredible paths and there, there are fruit trees, you know, lining the paths and, you know, just abundant and teeming with life and game and um, all these wonderful things that are just seem like they're all just there to help you. Um, and, you know, rather than thinking like, oh, maybe it was you know, those thousands of brown people that have been <laughs> running along the coast and helping us survive all this time who uh, planted these things here and took care of them, you know, um, for thousands of years, they thought, oh, obviously this is all for us. This was put here by God. And um, they just sort of abandoned the whole idea that, you know, this this is not an accident. This was not um, the product of divine intervention. It was people who knew the land um, and who had known the land for thousands of years, uh, people who loved the land and who expressed that love through their um, through their care and their stewardship um, and their ways of interacting with it um, and reciprocity, just the, the same way that we do today. Um, and just making sure that that was, that was passed down through the generation so that by the time the settlers got here, they were seeing a 15,000 year garden, essentially. Um, and I think that's one of those things that has most effectively been stomped out by settler colonialism. Um, and the thing that makes me angriest and saddest, um, amongst all of the other things, of course, um, is the idea that when indigenous people are allowed to do what we have been taught to do, um, things are just, they're better. <laughs> like, I, I'm sorry, there's there's not a way to, to put that in a way that's more you know, PC or whatever, it's, you know, when you know how to take care of the land, you take care of the land. And that's kind of all it comes down to. Um, and so right now there's this big idea of uh, wilderness again, right? COVID-19 has kind of driven people outdoors and they're once again falling into this idea of like seeking out some sort of like virgin, wild, um, untamed land and what people are rediscovering is that that sort of thing hasn't existed here for thousands of years. There's land that has not been cared for um, that bursts into flame, uh, you know, a couple of times a year because nobody's clearing out um, the dead and dying timber that we would normally be, uh, you know, burning for our wildlife. But there's not a place on Turtle Island that hasn't been loved and cared for for thousands of years before this. Um, so the work that I do on the... Um, 
Wild Edible Plant Project uh, is kind of hopefully trying to remind people of that, of reminding them that, you know, for one thing, the land will provide for you. It has provided for us forever. Um, and we, if we start taking better care of it, things like having people who are food insecure um, in a land of plenty might not be as much of an issue. Um, but then also the idea of like, if it's going to take care of us, we have to take care of it as well. We have to give up this idea of the divine right um, and that things are going poorly now because of our you know, moral misbehavior or whatever. It really just comes down to work. It comes down to like what you're willing to put in to this planet and what it's going to give back to you. Um, and so that in a very roundabout <laughs> sort of way, um, is kind of like what I've been, um, trying to get at and some of the stuff that I'll kind of be talking about, um, for the land and you, that, that event that Heather mentioned. So when you talk about things that we've learned, you know, people, you know, taking care of the land from what we've learned, who are you specifically talking about and what is it that's learned? I'm, I'm going to say that it sounds to me like you are talking about what your ancestors have learned about the land over these thousands of years and communicated that to continue that tradition and that knowledge and those things of what we know versus the person who drops into a space and says, oh, it doesn't look like anybody's here and this is just nature. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I am Menominee. Um, and for um, a lot of folks, like, you know, um, Menominee is synonymous with forestry. We have this incredible, beautiful, incredibly biodiverse, dense forest that is actually so lush that you can see the outlines of our reservation boundaries from satellite photos, um, which is really astonishing because like the Nikolai Forest is right there. And yet you can <laughs> you can still kind of tell where the reservation begins and ends. Um and most people, when they show up to that, they see it and they think, wow, look at this beautiful place that's that's never been cut over, unlike the rest of Wisconsin. And it's like, well, actually, no, we have a, a thriving timber industry. We've been cutting this forest. <laughs> you know, we've been cutting these trees down forever, and we're going to continue to do that forever. Um, the difference is, is that we know how to do it properly. Like, we know how to do things without just letting profit drive everything that we do. Um, in Canada, there are all these groves of... Um, these beautiful trees, like they're like hawthorn trees and like fruit and nut trees that are all kind of like growing together. And apparently people thought that that was just like there, like that was just something that just naturally occurred. And then I read a study not too long ago that was like, oh no, these actually like meticulously grouped and very, in, you know, these uh, trees that are growing together really, really well in this like one particular area that we all thought just happened to be there is actually the meticulous work of people who were taking care of that land. <laughs> It wasn't just an accident. It was thoughtful management. Um, and that's that's the sort of thing that I'm talking about when I'm saying like reinvoking that that knowledge. Like if you take care of things properly, they'll they'll be good for a long time. It's that sustainability, that multi-generational thinking that gets you there. Um, and that's that encompasses so many things. To both Jasmine, to both you and Heather, a question about collecting all of this knowledge and information, researching it, pulling it out of, you know, stories and people and different documents and projects, and then putting it all together and then sharing it so people can learn it and hopefully turn it into something actionable and utilize it. 
We live in a time today, right now, where people are very voraciously discussing cultural knowledge, which culture, which ethnic group, which religious group, which, you know, citizens of which country have cultural knowledge of food, fashion, cooking, uh, heritage, appearance. And we live in a time where simultaneously um, we are wanting to learn and wanting to acknowledge the very particular um, specialties and traits and things of all these different cultures and peoples. But at the same time, there's a very strong culture of saying, and now no one else can touch that except for those people because everyone else has no right to that because then it becomes appropriation or copying or not understanding or something like that. And it's a very um, almost counterproductive juxtaposition <laughs> of those two ideas that are, are very fervent right now. When you talk about all these things, both of you and, and this project to, um, you know, collect knowledge and, and share it and use it who do you want to ultimately understand it, see it, and use it? I think this is really um, a question of, of appropriateness. Like, personally, I don't see anything wrong with um, saying about certain things that have gotten my people through the years saying, you know what, sorry, this this is just not for you. <laughs> like, this, <laughs> this is for us. Like, this is something that we earned. This is something we fought for that we kept. And we're protecting it for you know, the sake of it. When we talk about things like the land, um, though, I think one of the things that is most frustrating is the idea that it is like just strictly cultural. Because like, yes, the the land values that go into these practices um, are very important and do have a lot to do with why they're successful. Like if you're just valuing um, money, if you're only seeing these things as natural resources and not as your relatives, then yes, you're inherently going to treat them differently. That's just a fact. But at the same time, these things are so learnable. Whenever people come to the Menominee Reservation, um, the one thing that we always tell them is like, you know, this is not magic. <laughs> like this is not, you know, this is, this is basic ecological science coupled with not being a jerk to the, you know, to the things that you share this planet with. Like, you can still have a thriving local economy. You can still be a human and like have, you know, your TV and your car and all that stuff. Just don't do it to the extreme. Um, there's very little that's keeping every other place, you know, where a forest would naturally occur, like in that particular biome, very little from keeping those places from looking like the Menominee Reservation in terms of like the biodiversity and the health of the species that are there. And I think that's a huge part of the reason for um, engaging in these types of discussions. Like, I'm not going to teach you how to be Menominee, but if you want to learn how to take care of this place properly and treat it with respect and maybe have um, a relationship with the land you live on where it's not going to flood or spontaneously catch fire like every six months or so, like, yeah, sure. Like we can, we can probably teach you how to do that, or at least how to begin fixing that problem and hopefully engaging, um, you know, the land ethic of other people who also have a relationship with the land, you know, like the, the black land ethic is the one great unexplored topic 
and mainstream environmentalism that I think like holds so much interesting knowledge um, and lessons that can be learned here. I think the more that we start to engage in those things in an honest way, um, you know, the better off we'll be. Heather? Yeah, there's, there's definitely a fine line between appreciating and appropriating. And I think, you know, once that line is understood, then, you know, there can be harmony between those who are indigenous and, and not indigenous. And it's not like, you know, and to piggyback off of what Jasmine was saying, it's not like we're saying we don't want to teach people about who we are or how to, you know, cultivate the land and protect it or, you know, things like that. We want people to know our history. We just want to be the bearers of our history. And there are going to be some <laughs> things that we're quite protective of because, of our history, you know, there, we've had so much taken, um, from 1492 on that there are going to be things that were, that are either going to be not appropriate to be discussed or, or, you know, that we're not going to divulge that information. Like Jasmine said, you know, we're not going to teach you how to be Menominee or Oneida or Stockbridge Muncie, but we can teach you how to protect the land, how to gather your histories, how to, you know, um, you know, learn about food sovereignty and, and we'll teach you about ours. It's very important. Um, it just, it crosses into a whole bunch of other lines when you deal with appropriation in terms of the way, you know, some, you know, you might dress or wear your hair or mascots or all those other things, you know, it leads into all of that, but we're going to be protective, but we want people to learn. And so it's, it's a fine line that we even, I think as indigenous people walk, but, um, and hopefully, you know, this is the beginning, you know, with Forge of, of being able to, to help bring those issues to light and really help serving those in Indian country who are doing all of this great work. Yeah, I think like the other thing too is that we're not, you know, we're all kind of colonized people um, amongst our different indigenous nations. We're all very different. Very and I true. think like a big part of it is like now that we know what that's like, we don't want to colonize other people <laughs> as well. Exactly. Like, even amongst other indigenous people, like we'll have that conversation sometimes of like, you know, that's great that you have your own cosmos cosmologies like we have ours um, or like you know, on occasion having to put our foot down and saying like, you know, that's, that's great, but that's not your story to tell. Um, and so I think like we want non-Indigenous people to like celebrate their own culture too. Like that would be fantastic. Um, I love German food. <laughs> like I love, you know, <laughs> I love other cultures as well. It's just like learning how to respect each other's cultural sovereignty is going to be a big part of that too. Exactly. Well, Forge sounds like a good place to start and Everybody has their, you know, their their time to work and sort of get everything going. Uh, both of you are also very young, relatively speaking. You're, you know, Jasmine, you're an undergrad and you're certainly not the elders. So I think that, you know, you have a long, you have a lot of runway in front of you to be working and talking and, and doing things, which is also great. And I think it also you know, speaks to the potential longevity of something if, you know, you do have, you, you do need multi-generational people to make multi-generational projects work. One last question. Both of you spoke in terms of, of uh, putting things together, preserving things, working on things for the next seven generations. Why seven? Why not two, three, five, ten? 
What's the importance of seven generations? Jasmine, do you want to take a crack at that one? <laughs> no, I was going to let you go for that one first. <laughs> <laughs> no, she's like, I, I jumped in on the last one, so I figured it would be good to let you go. <laughs> oh, you're too, you're too kind. So the idea, the concept of seven generations is seven teachings, right? So there are seven teachings um, that vary from nation to nation. And so, you know, there's a, a proverb that says we don't, um, own the earth, we borrow it from our children. And so it's it's about being prepared. So everything, this moment that I'm living in now was prepared for me seven generations ago. And so what I'm doing now is preparing the the world, the teachings, you know, all of that for the next seven generations. So it all has to do with these seven teachings that, um, again, I vary from nation to nation. Like I, when I think of it, I think of the Ojibwe teachings, um, which I I won't go into because they all vary from different from different tribes. But it's it's understanding that it continues. You know, there's there's this circle that we are all a part of, and making sure that what we're doing now only does good for the next generations coming after us. And so the number seven just comes from teachings. Okay, well, that's a good enough reason. Um, (laughs) Is seven a lucky number or considered a uh, good number or... I, it it varies, you know, again, like even, you know, when Jasmine mentioned the idea of cosmology, like every tribe is different. So it goes along different tribal teachings. Okay. Well, I want to thank Heather Bruegel, Director of Education at the Forge Project, and Jasmine Neosh, Forge Project Fellow and Climate Change Activist, uh, for coming on the show this morning to talk about the Forge Project um, and Indian Country. If you are interested in finding out more about it, again, go to forgeproject.com, follow them on social media at Forge Project New York. Um, you can follow Heather at Heather M. Bruegel and Jasmine at Jasmine Neosh. I want to thank um, Matt Patterson, who is our engineer. I want to thank DJ Uptown Nico, who is the mastermind of that great little Tech Bytes theme song. Thank Heritage Radio Network for creating a platform for more than 10 years for all of us to come together and talk about stories, issues, technology, change, recipes, family, community and record them to share them and listen to them later. We have more than, I think it's 15,000 episodes of podcasts now in our archives and libraries online, um, which is a lot and certainly has something for everyone. If you like this show, come back and listen next week. If you love this show, go to heritageradionetwork.org, click the beating heart and make a donation, maybe become a monthly member that will help us keep the lights on and the mics hot. We can keep recording stories and archiving them so we can have them now. And I don't know if we can make it to seven generations, but maybe at least another seven years. I'm Jennifer Leitze, and this is Tech Bites. Tech Bites is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Just enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. 
Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.